Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. We have just a few moments with Congressman Scott Perry from Pennsylvania. He's one of the bold and courageous 20 that stood and frankly helped, in my opinion, helped save America. And we praise God for him and the others who stood during a time of severe testing a week ago. I know it looks like a little bit old noise, old news. It feels like the election of the Speaker of the House seems like 10 years ago now because there's so much has happened this week. But I want to go back and just recover some quick things on that week. And then we're going to come to the news of this week with the congressman. Congressman Perry, I so appreciate you standing. You're among friends who praise God for you for doing what you've done. I'm going to just jump in. What now that we're a week beyond that, what are some of the rule changes that we have reason to be rejoicing over that have survived the test, at least of this first week when the entire House had to vote on them? Well, for the first time ever, and thank you so much for having me on. And I'll just tell you, we were, there was a lot of praying going on uh, a week or so ago, day and night before every meeting, at the end of every meeting, just uh, calling on God for his courage, for his wisdom, and to let us know that what we were doing was going to be to his glory. But some of the rules changes, look, this is inside baseball for a lot of people, but for the first time ever in Congress, a single subject rule. So that means that a bill has to have a subject, one subject that we can all vote on. We're so frustrated and tired of people standing behind and hiding behind these huge bills where they voted for something or against something and blamed it on whatever was in the bill. Well, I was for this, but all that other stuff was in the bill. I had to accept that to get what I wanted, or I was against that, but I voted for it anyhow to get this one thing. First time ever in history, we have a single subject rule in Congress now, so we're going to be able to vote on the bills and constituents, our bosses are going to be able to see how we voted on things. A 72-hour rule, you might not think that's important because in the rules, the day prior to that was the three-day rule, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Monday, three days. But in Congress, three days, let's pick Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Three days in Congress is on Saturday, one minute, on Sunday, 24 hours, and on Monday, one minute. So it was really the 24-hour and two-minute rule to read 4,000 pages. We said, we are tired of that. The American people want to know what's in this stuff. For goodness sakes, we want to know what's in this stuff. We want three actual days. So it went from the three-day rule to the 72-hour rule so that not only we can see what's in these bills, but the American people can see what these in, that's, what's in these bills. So, look, there's a whole lot of changes. Like I said, a lot of it's inside baseball. There's a thing called germaneness on amendments. I don't know whether you know this or not, but there hasn't been an amendment on the House floor for six years. So if you're not on the committee that brings the bill to the floor, but it affects your district, the only thing you can do is vote yes or no. You can't try and improve the bill. You can't try and change anything because you're not allowed to. Things like that are esoteric, but people don't realize how much it affects them because their representatives don't really get to represent them. We wanted to change all that. Everything we did was for the little guy. We weren't doing anything for ourselves. We just said, my goodness, if we just keep doing the same things, with the same conditions, with the same people, we're going to get the same outcomes. The American people are sick of it. We're sick of this illusion of representative government. We're going to stand firm until we get some of this stuff changed. I am so appreciative of what I'm hearing. I'm going to ask some just some quick questions, go over quick answers, so we uh, 
respect your time on the other end, another commitment you have. Biden's house, classified yeah. documents. Your thoughts? As a guy who held a top secret uh, security clearance for three decades, here's what I know. If you, mis if you mishandled any of those documents, they were out of the chain of custody. They were out of the SCIF, the Secure Compartmentalized Information Facility. You were going to jail. They were probably going to send you to jail first and ask questions later. What this shows is these uh, two very stark standards of justice in the United States of America, where some people get punished for for breaking the law and other people, you know, just get to walk through, you know, if you're connected, if you're one of the elite, you get to do anything you want to. Here's what I know uh, from open source reporting. These documents have been out in the public somewhere for six years, unsecured, not under uh, secret uh, security or secret service protection, like at President Trump's house, but in the Penn Biden Center where the uh, ambassador for the uh, OC, OSCE, the op, uh, Office of Security and Cooperation in Europe, was running the place. There were people. The point is, is there were foreigners running through that office all day long for years, and these documents were there. Now I don't know what they were doing, and I'm not trying to cast any aspersions here, but I know that someone's responsible for doing something wrong, and there needs to be an accountability. The Vice President of the United States has no ability to classify or declassify anything. Only the president of the United States has that. These documents are out in the wind, whether it's somebody's home or what have you. Something, somebody did something wrong, and there has to be an accountability for it. We have separation of powers in our country between the judicial, the legislative, and the executive. Um, a person's cell phone is effectively their office, and it's their, not their personal office, but a cell phone is your private communications, and it's your method of communication and storage of data. You, I don't know if this happened to any other member of Congress before, where the branch of government executive, the FBI, came to you as the sitting member of the legislative branch of government, sitting member of Congress, and confiscated your cell phone. Tell us about that. Well, they did. That was last summer. And so they, they took it, they took an image of it, and they want to rifle through it. And of course, this is a battle in the courts, but I will tell you, if you like spousal privileges, the privilege you have of the conversation with your wife, when I send my wife a message every morning, I tell her I love her and I miss her when I'm in Washington, D.C., they want to be able to read that. They want to be able to go through my attorney-client privilege because I'm talking to lawyers on that. They want to, this is something that most people don't have to deal with, but as a member of the House of Representatives, the legislative branch, I'm protected by a thing called speech and debate which protects members of the legislature from being coerced by the executive branch to vote for something or vote against something else and your conversations with your constituents. The federal government, the administration wants to take a look at all that stuff. Now, I'm not the target of the investigation. That's what they tell me and my attorneys, but yet they still want to look at all that information, literally truckloads of information, and uh, they don't have the right to do it, but they're going to see if they can, again, change history and, and, and breach that separation of powers between the legislative branch and the executive branch. This is not the most important question, but were you just walking through the halls of Congress and three agents showed up and surrounded you, or how did this happen? Well, I was, uh, I was on vacation. We get once a year to take a vacation. I was with my in-laws and our family and our, my wife and our two little girls. We were at the Jersey Shore and there was a ring at the doorbell at nine o'clock in the morning and I walked and opened the door and there were guys in suits at the shore uh, telling me that they were going to seize my cell phone. So, you know, I had one question for them. I said, how did you find me? And they said, 
you know, it's what we do. Um, look, this is a, a huge breach of people's privacy. We absolutely want our law enforcement agencies to use whatever tools are necessary to catch criminals doing bad things. But um, this, is, this is beyond the pale. And again, for a person who's not the target of an investigation, what they could have probably done is said, hey, we'd like to talk to you about some of the conversations you had. And as a law-abiding citizen, I'd be happy to talk to them. In July, 47 members of the House of Representatives voted for something that I found very objectionable. You were one of those, but you're one of the first or only who actually publicly repented of that and corrected it in a vote in December. Eight others changed their vote from 47 down to 39, I believe. I don't know the stories of the others, but you went public with an apology. I, I can't recall when I've heard a member of Congress apologize for a wrong vote. What's the story on that? Well, look, we all fall short of grace for sure. I'm imperfect, as you know. But here again, with the 72-hour rule, we'd like to be able to read these bills. I found out this bill was coming to the floor. It didn't come through committee. There was no conference on it. So I had to quickly, in the, in the hustle and bustle of the day, try and find out what this bill was about. I got a very quick description by my staff. I called my pastor. I called my local priest. I called another pastor that I visit their church. Now, maybe I described it incorrectly, but everybody said, everybody said, well, you have to vote for this. You're not for interracial. You're not against interracial marriage. The bill set up a contest between you're either for, um, if you're for same-sex marriage, you're against interracial marriage and vice versa. Well, I've always been for traditional marriage and I have no problem, obviously, with interracial marriage, but I had to make a choice at the last minute. I made the wrong choice. You know, and uh, so, look, I'm very thankful to the good Lord I had an opportunity to make it right on the second vote because my heart was sick. But you got a moment to make a choice and sometimes you foul it up. Just admit your mistake and, and do, the, do better the next time. That's that's I think what we can all be uh, thankful for is that opportunity. I cannot tell you how much I respect you for that change and for that open admission like that. It causes us to respect you and love you even more. Thank you for that. You are chairman of the Freedom Caucus. That is an enormous honor. We have enormous high regard for the Freedom Caucus. Just in case there's some listeners who don't know what it is, tell us what the Freedom Caucus is, about how many members of Congress are a part of that. Well, look, there's a, I'm going to say it's between 35 and 45. We kind of let each individual member decide whether they want to tell their constituents whether they're Freedom Caucus members or not. Uh, we are persecuted for being in the Freedom Caucus, and we just let members do that themselves. And if they want to be persecuted, well, nobody wants to be persecuted, but, you know, you'd make that decision of whether you want to make that public or not. Freedom Caucus mission is essentially this. We stand for the countless millions of Americans that feel that Washington doesn't speak for them, doesn't care about them, and has left them behind. Generally speaking, I would characterize Freedom Caucus members as uniquely positioned with the mindset they, that they came to Congress to save the Republic. They don't care about how many fundraisers they go to, which committee assignments they get, getting their name in the paper or being on TV. They came for one goal in mind and that's to save the Republic. And so it allows us with that viewpoint to resist the pressures of Washington DC and the coercive environment there because we know what our mission is and we stick to that. And so that's that's generally it. And in a nutshell, not everybody wants to join an organization like that. Um, there's a couple criteria. You have to be willing to vote against your own leadership, which is uncomfortable. But you also have to be able to get to yes. 
if you've worked on something, look, nothing's going to be perfect, but if you tried your best and, and it's as good as it's going to get, then you should be able to try to be able to, you know, to get to yes. If we, it's easy to say no to everything, but if we want to move the ball forward, sometimes you got to be able to be yes. So, you know, oftentimes we're called intractable and hard right and all that stuff. It's never the wrong time to do the right thing. And, uh, and that's what we're interested every single step of the way. Uh, what a high honor it is to be the, the leader of that. Congratulations. And we have Thank such you. high regard for the Freedom Freedom Caucus is one of the greatest encouragements to me in D.C. With, uh, with the change in the House, what investigations do you think realistically we have a right to expect, particularly in light of the fact that many Americans have lost all confidence the judicial system is neither systemic nor judicial. Uh, what do you think investigations will come down the road? Well, my goodness, there's so much to talk about there. I think for sure we're going to investigate what's going on down at the border and who's making those decisions, these flights into our country in the, in the middle of the night. I certainly think that we're going to have to investigate Hunter Biden and, more importantly, the connection to the president and foreign governments and, and uh, ill-gotten funds. We have a new thing on the docket now, which will be these classified documents and how they ended up where they did. But quite honestly, on a macro scale, all these organizations of the federal government that have been uh, that have been punishing and 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 prevailing on the American people, the citizens, um, uh, censoring them, teaming up with the the outside media and big tech organizations to censor speech, to to silence individuals based on their political viewpoints to uh, provide information uh, on your health, your health choices that may be incorrect and, and may be helping certain corporations or, or other public entities. That just gives you a look. And quite honestly, I think we need to take a look at the other side of what happened on January 6th with the government involved. And what about these people that remain in confined uh, without court hearings? We don't have political prisoners in the United States, but we're not supposed to, but it sure seems like we do. So We've got a full plate. There is plenty, plenty to do. Yeah, that last question, I want to come back and visit that another time. We have more time because it is quite shocking to us what's happening in D.C. with what we do have political prisoners. Uh, pretty, pretty staggering. And so thank you for bringing that up. Mario, I'll go to you for questions. You're muted, Mario. We, you got to unmute. Thank you so much, Congressman. A couple of questions. Number one. Sure. Uh, th this whole thing with the Biden classified documents, they knew before the election, uh, they they didn't expose it then so that it would not affect Biden. Um, some people are saying maybe they're now trying to get rid of him and have somebody else as president. Uh, there's other things they could have gone after um, talking about classified documents actually may weaken their case against the president. Why now? What is their thinking? Uh, did they have to expose it at this time? Well, look, I don't know how that came to be. I guess they were closing the Penn Biden Center. I don't know why you send lawyers to go pack up an office that you're closing, but that's allegedly what they did. Of course, it's just, uh, it, it's just very, uh, I don't know, curious maybe is the right word to say, to, to wonder how come they found out about it prior to the election, these documents that were outside of a classified setting and then didn't report it for months later. Why is that the case? I mean, we're being told that he did the right thing. Um, you can't just rob a bank and then return the money a couple of years later and then say that, uh, you know, that you should be exonerated of any criminal activity as a bank robber. And so we're not saying anybody, you know, we're certainly not saying that President Biden did anything wrong, 
But here's what we know. Somebody did something wrong, even how the documents are there out of the chain of custody, out of the secure facility, and what were they being used for? And then the reporting criteria. Why did it take so long to report them? And were there political motivations involved? Look, I, I will tell you, I think this is going to be a long investigation. I doubt that the administration is going to be very forthcoming on a timely matter with these, with these facts. But we're going to have to delve into it because we simply can't take their word for it. On day one, they said, well, we turned over the documents and, and everybody seemed, oh, that, that's fine. And I said to myself, is that the end of it? Is there more, are there more documents? Why are we taking their word for it? And lo and behold, the next day, there's more documents. I don't understand how come a, you know, a, a whole team of, of federal law enforcement agents shows up in the middle of the night or whatever and, and locks down the president, the former president's home and goes through his wife's underwear drawer and his son's sock drawer. But in this case, we're supposed to take the guy's word for it. Look, in their own terms, which I agree with, no one is above the law, but it sure seems like somebody's trying to be above the law right now. Um, what you experienced with your cell phone, uh, Devin Nunes, as he was uh, investigating uh, illegal spying of the DOJ, is spied on. Uh, what's to say that this type of targeting against the House won't continue by the DOJ and FBI strong arming or spying um, against your membership, Freedom Caucus, or even the, the Speaker? Well, it is one of the perils of being in office and being outspoken and being unafraid to take on the machinery of the federal government. But I will tell you, if we don't do it, every single right of every citizen is in peril if it's not already. And we have got to get to the bottom of it. We need to know how deep this rat hole goes. We need to expose it. And then we need to sanitize it and clean it up and make sure that these things don't happen. We live in a free country that uh, we were ordained by these freedoms from the good Lord. They're written down by men in the Constitution. And we take an oath to uphold and defend that. And that's what this means. And if it means going after these organizations and putting yourself in peril, somebody has to be willing to do it. If you're not willing to do it, you shouldn't seek this job. My last question, uh, um, the House has the power of the purse. What can be done unilaterally? I know that you just, uh, we just uh, so appreciated uh, the legislation uh, to defund IRS appointment of 87,000 agents. Um, is that something with the power of the purse that can be done unilaterally? If, if well, not, go ahead. It won't be able to be done unilaterally, but it's going to have to be done collaboratively with the, with the Senate and with the president. But if they want to fund their items, they're going to have to go through the House of Representatives. And my way of thinking is, is that the IRS 87,000 agents, a rogue FBI or DOJ that's spending money to persecute American citizens, uh, a Homeland Security that's spending money to, uh, to ship people illegally all across the country, all those things have to end. And so we can use the power of purse to say, if you want your side of this pie, we're going to get our side of the pie. You're going to get nothing. And that's what we need to do. Excellent. And congratulations for all your work. We'll be praying for you. Thank you so much. Back to you. Jim. I sure need your prayers and I appreciate them. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www. 
wellversedworld.org.